Hello, and welcome to The Balance with Catlin Tucker, presented by StudySync. I'm Catlin Tucker. I'm an educator, blended learning coach, speaker, and author with a particular interest in finding balance, which I talk about in my book, Balance with Blended Learning. Each episode of this podcast, I'll be interviewing a different educator or thought leader to pursue this question of balance, how we find it both inside and out of the classroom, and why it matters. Today, I'm excited to have Jason Green on the podcast to discuss everything from leading innovative change that is scalable to shifting culture on campuses and for teachers finding ways to shift from performing to being present. So Jason was a co-author on my best-selling book, Blended Learning in Action, and he's also the co-founder and co-CEO of Link, Learning Innovation Catalyst. And I'm thrilled to have him on the podcast today. Welcome, Jason. Very, very glad to be on here with you. Yeah, so I'm going to dive right in. I'm really excited to have the opportunity to chat with you because you have done so much work with people all over education in terms of like you've worked with leadership teams, you've worked with teachers in kind of a professional development capacity. So in your work with leadership teams, because we've talked a lot in previous podcasts kind of from the teacher perspective, what are some of the challenges teachers are facing? But when you work with leadership teams, what do you see as some of the biggest areas of imbalance that leaders are struggling with as they attempt to prioritize this big shift to 21st century teaching and learning? There's a few things that come to mind, um, one of which is, you know, I'm going to take this right from um, Steve Covey and, um, and his work, but this kind of idea of urgent versus important, right? And many people that have read um, some of the Covey books, there's the quadrant of kind of like where things are situated in what's like really urgent, but maybe unimportant to what things are urgent and important or even important, but not urgent, Right. Mm-hmm. And one thing that I found with um, many school leaders, especially, is they hover in the world of urgent all the time. Mm. And oftentimes, it's urgent, unimportant, right? (laughs) Um, That's just the reality of it. It's like, I've got this deadline for this paperwork. I've got to get to the district, like, right away. And it's taking, like, I've got to drop everything to get this in. Right. You know, fire drill, obviously very, very important. But it's one of those things that, like, does it lead to more student learning? Maybe not. But, you know, you, you look at a, a lead on any given day, and it's all these different urgent things that have to that just suck up their time, right? Right. Um, two kids just got into a fight. And so now, the, you know, for the next hour, this is what they have to focus on, right? Could just, you name it. And school leadership ends up just being sucked into this kind of um, urgency of whatever's happening in the moment, Right. And I don't want to create the picture that much of that is not important because it is. Mm -hmm. But what ends up happening when leadership spends so much time in the world of urgent, then oftentimes what might be missed is the world of important non-urgent. And when I think about that, there's a quadrant, that quadrant of important but non-urgent This is where you have things like uh, building school culture. Hmm. This is where you have things like, um, you know, creating potentially like the priority around um, more innovation in classrooms or, you know, really supporting 
let's say, teachers being able to do um, really kind of transition to student-centered um, experiences within classrooms. Like, there, there's, no, there's no fire alarm that says, we must do this innovation around student-centered <laughs> classrooms. Right. It's just, it's just that, that's just not what happens in most schools. And so when you really look at how leaders have to then structure their work, um, especially within schools where you have this like, you know, kind of swarm of urgency all the time. Mm-hmm. It then becomes how effective are you able to be in getting to this quadrant of these highly important things, especially now as you and I are both in this space of innovation and the world is changing so rapidly and how are schools able to actually keep up with that? It's something that we know has to be a very intentional effort. And time and importance and space has to be created around that. Um, So I would say, like, when I think about it, that's the first big and really important imbalance that I see in many of the uh, school leaders that we work with. I think that that, as you're talking, I'm, like, imagining the quadrant in my mind and thinking, gosh, if teachers and leaders just stopped sometimes to think about what am I prioritizing and why and where would it fit in this quadrant? And am I focused on these urgent pieces, these things that have, you know, that deadline of later today or this week or the things you know somebody's going to come check up on or somebody's going to be trying to measure with some kind of a test. Those things, like you said, end up getting all of this energy and attention. And yet some of those bigger almost more intangible things like culture, which are so incredibly vital to the long-term health really of a campus and of the people who work on a campus get neglected. And I I wonder if we thought about the choices we're making and the priorities that we have in that quadrant kind of sense, would we make some different decisions about how we allocate our time and energy? Yeah, I think we would, and I think we would have to, right? So, so one of the things that we do um, with our current, with our my current organization, Link, is we try to work with school leadership around making culture urgent, hmm. making shifts in mindset urgent, making like this idea of creating classrooms that are going to be much more learner centered urgent, right? And so, part of how we do that is. One of our opening conversations that we have um, with school leaders is really about the dramatic shifts that are happening in the workforce, that are happening with, you know, students and how they need to be differently prepared for a world where, you know, you don't have a job for 30 years, but you've got to keep kind of in this continuous mode of being a generative learner all the time just to keep pace with the kind of world they're going to face. And so when you think about it like that, then, oh my goodness, this is like extremely urgent. <laughs> You're like, we got to get started on this gotta, right now. <laughs> like, we've got to get moving. Yeah. Like, like we, there, there, there's, a, there's a great stat that I love, which is like by the, by the mid-2030s, it is likely that most of the people in the workforce are going to actually be in situations where you're going to have, you know, 11, 15, 20 different jobs throughout the course of your career where you're going to have to actually be in this mode of like always being able to be a learner because technology is moving so fast that, you know, the thing that you did last year is now being done by robots. Right? Yeah. And you yes. think about it, the mid 2030s. 
kid, our current kindergarten and first graders and second graders are going to be entering the workforce around that time. So this isn't like some far off thing. This is a real thing for us, right? And so in that regard, when we think about these imbalances, part of what, what I think the shift is, is even recognizing what is urgent. I could not agree more with what you're saying. This resonates with me on a personal level because I graduated from credential school over 17 years ago. And when I left credential school, I thought I'm going to be a teacher. That is my career path. And in the 17 years since I left UC Santa Barbara with my credential and master's, I have had so many different jobs. I have done contract work for ed tech companies. I have been a coach working with teachers. I've been a trainer and professional development facilitator. I've been a public speaker. I've written books and now I'm learning how to be a podcaster. And these are all new skill sets and they're not skills that I learned in high school or in college or in graduate school. They're really skills that I've had to develop and hone really on my own, reaching out to grab resources online, connect with people who have expertise who I can learn from. I've had to be really nimble. And I think our students absolutely need to learn how to be nimble and flexible as well and how to continue learning long after their formal education is over because they're going to be shifting careers many times in their lives. And the kids who I think will be most successful are the ones who feel like they can continue learning. They can figure out what is needed for this particular job or endeavor and how do I hone these skills on my own. And I worry about, you know, in education, a lot of the folks making decisions, a lot of the parents, they may not have had that same experience. They might've had a job or a handful of jobs and may not really understand the dynamic world we are sending these kids into. And I sometimes worry that we're not preparing students with the skills to be nimble, lifelong learners. Exactly. And, and where, where those things are happening, it's usually happening in pockets, mm, right? right? And so the other, the other thing that I found, and this gets me to the second um, kind of imbalance that I see when we're working with now school and district leaders is, you know, you say, okay, um, uh, you meet with the superintendent or meet with the principal and, and you say, okay, Let's talk about innovation, right? Let's talk about, you know, where things are happening. And there's usually like a school here or a couple schools over there. And they're like, okay, oh, I know where you should go. You should go check out this school over in this part of town because they're doing amazing work. Mm. And then on the way, you pass by 20 other schools on, to get to the innovative school, <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, or you go into a school building and it's like, okay, Principal, let's talk about student-centered learning and 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 where you know these teachers are doing these new things around blended and personalized, all this stuff. And then you say, okay, oh, I know where to send you. And you walk down the hall and you walk by twenty different classrooms to get to the one teacher, right? Right. And that that for me becomes the next really critical imbalance, and that is how do we think about innovation? It's so often it's easier to think about innovation in these kind of small pockets mm-hmm. with the people like, you know, you look at yourself as a teacher, the people who are like Catlin are like, oh, I'm ready. I want to travel. I'm going to do this no matter what. But then what happens is it's so easy. And this is where it becomes an equity issue. 
But then what happens is if you only think about innovation in small pockets, then how many students are we missing that are not going to get those skills or get that experience, right? And so the other piece, like with, for, for me, that as a, somebody who works with school leaders and district leaders is really finding the place in which, because there is a real value to starting, let's say, an innovative um, uh, initiative in a small place or in a pilot, but it's also really easy to get stuck there. Hmm. Right. And so then the question becomes, how do we begin to think about scaling and think about scaling from the very beginning? So maybe maybe in the beginning, it's, it's the, it is the one school, but we're going into it saying we do have a thought or a plan around how to get from one school to several schools to maybe a full district. Or if you're a principal, yeah, we're going to start with these couple teachers who are ready but now we're, we're going to have a real plan for actually expanding that beyond so that the equity issue, which is oftentimes the students who need this kind of support the most are the places where the innovations not happen. Right. Right. And that and that that's where, um, um, you know, we're, we're doing a lot of work in our organization now around this kind of idea of equity. And there is this convergence between innovation at scale and real equity where all students have a chance to get the best of what that school or district has to offer. And I think that's, I love this idea of innovation at scale because I, you know, I was the teacher doing the kind of different stuff in my classroom on a campus. I see amazing teachers on every campus who are doing innovative things and experimenting, but like, how do we shift these pockets of innovation to create large scale change and create equity for all kids accessing amazing teachers um, and have school campuses and individuals all individuals on school campuses working to create meaningful change? How do you go from those pockets of innovation to innovation at scale? So what we found is with, with any innovation um, or innovation scale, that it really does have to be a initial focus on culture. And we've actually identified um, with Link five culture tenants that we believe to be absolutely essential um, for a scale to happen. So the first, uh, we call it the trace. So the first one is trust. Um, if trust isn't there, then then you can almost forget it because anytime people are willing to really put themselves at a place of vulnerability, they have to actually trust their environment, trust the people are around, trust themselves that, that if something doesn't go well, mm-hmm. then it's actually okay. Because most times when you're trying something new, it doesn't go well, right? Right, so true. The next one is risk-taking. And so when trust is actually there, then people are much more willing to actually take risks, um, to do things that might be uncomfortable. Uh, And then from there, we look at um, agency. So agency for us is the willingness to actually put yourself out there, to step forward, to actually take the initiative, to do a thing that maybe you didn't do before. Um, The C stands for collaboration. um, And that's the willingness to 
uh, work with others, to do intervisitation, to allow people into your classroom as a teacher and say, hey, I'm trying this new thing and I'd love to have folks see it, maybe give me some feedback, or even I'll go and visit your room when you're trying something new. Mm-hmm. And the fifth, the fifth one for us is equity. And we just talked about this. And really this focus, this intentional focus on we're going to make sure that whatever's happening in this environment that, that every single stakeholder, student, parent, teacher, otherwise, we're going to make sure that everyone is considered and gets what they need. So the trace for us is the starting point for recognizing when and how to begin to have the conversation at scale. So in many of our, in much of our work in with schools and districts is we actually have real conversations about culture and understand like where stuff might be out. And then we begin to work with schools and, and districts around how do you then build? And this, this is a very critical point that people often t- don't have back to that, that quadrant of urgent versus important. Mm-hmm. Part of why I think people avoid real conversations in the work around culture is because when have you ever been taught or trained on how to be a culture transformer? Oh, right. I mean, when you talk about culture with leaders, teachers, anyone, it's so like, it's how, how do you create culture? How do you change culture? It's this thing that nobody feels like they can get their head around. Exactly. And so it's much easier to say, oh, let me go fill out this form to, to, to submit this paper to this other thing that needs this office in the district. Right. Because we can, that we, that's, that's a tangible thing. Yeah, you check that and right so, off your to-do list, right? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. It's the thing that we know how to do, yeah. right? Yeah. And so with culture, it's, it's hard because we're never really taught how to be a culture transformer. So part of, part of our work with many of our, our schools and districts has been, okay, let's actually really dissect how we can be strategic around building trust within an environment, building risk-taking. And so there are different ways. I'll just give one quick example and then, and then kind of move into the, the structures. But one quick example is we do, we do something called innovator in action tags. Hmm. And it's a very simple thing. There are these little small posters that um, we hand out to the teachers who are um, trying new things or willing to try new things. And what we say is, okay, when you're trying a new practice, put this uh, little poster at your door and it says innovator in action, right? Mm-hmm. You wouldn't believe how much just that little poster at the door makes a difference for a teacher trying a new thing because it does two things. One, if whatever they're trying completely falls apart, they can say, well, look, I told you at the door, I'm, I'm innovating right now, right? So, so you, you knew what was happening when, you know, I posted this up. Right. But what it also does is it starts to actually have them think of themselves as an innovator. Right. So now you're, you're doing this little thing, which is shifting mindset and giving people safety. I love that. And one of the things I have always encouraged groups that I'm working with who are shifting practice to do as well is figure out like a routine like that, something like the Wednesday walks where you encourage teachers on your prep, walk around just 20 minutes, pop into a classroom. And if you had a sign like that on a door in your corridor, maybe you pop into that classroom and maybe there's a QR code you scan to a Google form where you can give some 
basic feedback on what you saw, suggestions, compliments, questions, things like that, where the person who is innovating and put it on their door has a structured way to get feedback from their peers. And then all of a sudden you're really feeding this, like we are learning together kind of attitude on a campus. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And so the, like the way that we, to that, to that end, what's amazing about these kinds of things is they actually become kind of fixtures in an organization, hmm. right? So every Wednesday, we know this is happening. Right. Oh, I see these posters on the door. I see them all the time now. That's actually how I'm going to start to shift the culture in my school or in my district. So what you just described, Catlin, is a great example of a frequent behavior repeated over time. Because culture is not a thing that you just turn. It's a thing that you actually can be intentional about shifting, again, over time. Unfortunately, the other part, an imbalance in education, is that we want things so fast. And so we're not in, in the, we don't have the appetite to allow for things that are a little slower, like culture, to actually take, take shape. Right. Yeah. No, I, I sometimes feel like as educators and people in education, we get so frustrated with kids. It's like immediate gratification. <laughs> kids like want it all right now. And I feel like we're guilty of that too, as adults sometimes when it comes to something like culture that really needs to be nurtured, it needs to grow. And it's just going to take time. Like you said, with yeah. those frequent behaviors, it takes, it takes some consistency at the leadership level, somebody who sticks around long enough, who can really kind of guide those frequent behaviors and make sure that if you institute Wednesday walks and innovator in action routines, and maybe you give up a staff meeting every month and you say, you know what, we're not going to meet. I'd prefer for you to learn from your peers, make sure you hit two innovator in action classes and stick around for 20 minutes, give them a little bit of feedback. And that's your credit for the administrative time for this month, because I value you learning from each other. You know, it's, it's so interesting how pivotal leaders are in those kinds of shifts. Yeah, absolutely. And then what ends up happening with things like, like what you just described, it, it actually ends up becoming then a structure. Hmm. So the, the second piece of like, so, so culture is just one part of this, mm -hmm. but it has to be the foundation. But then when culture is married with structure, now you've got something. And I'll, I'll tell you what I, what I mean by that. So like you mentioned, so the every Wednesday thing could actually become a structure within that school that can live. Hmm. So the challenge that I think is happening in almost every school that I've been in is the current structures actually do not lend themselves towards scale nor sustainability. <laughs> and so you think about like the structures that happen for, for PD, since that's my, my field. Like one structure is one-on-one -on -one coaching. One-on-one -on -one coaching is probably the best possible thing, one of the best things that, that you can do or a teacher can get support as a method of getting support. Absolutely. But the problem is one-on-one -on -one coaching is not scalable. There's no way to actually create a model of one-on-one -on -one coaching where there's the capacity from the district or at the school to give every teacher that level of support. So what ends up happening with most one-on-one -on -one coaching models is they don't scale because they have to focus on just that one or two teachers at the school, right? Okay. So it breaks down. So there is, it's not a structure for scale. And then you think about the next structure um, that many schools are using, and that's the structure of PLCs. So... We see a lot of schools now 
like really um, earnest about getting their PLCs and, and teachers working together. And this is amazing. But the problem with PLCs is if there's not a very um, organized structure around PLCs, they also fall apart. Yeah, true. So what, what starts as a maybe a very well-intentioned teachers getting together, it falls apart because it's hard to know, well, who, you know, where, who's the leader? What are we talking about today? What's the, and, and then so the PLCs fall apart. Right. And, and PLCs, you and I, yeah. that time is often hijacked by admin because they're like, oh, teachers are going to be together. They should be working on this. And then there's that lack of agency from the teacher side where I think they feel like this, this isn't really our time. So if there isn't a real prescribed structure to how they use that time or admin kind of takes over that time, then yeah, I've seen a lot of PLCs break down that way. Yes. And this is where um, in our, in our, we haven't talked about it much yet, but all of our work goes back to um, Dr. Arnitha Ball. She's a, a Stanford University um, professor mm-hmm. that has spent the last now almost 20 years studying professional development. Um, and she created what she calls the model of generative change. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that she says is that teachers must be agents of change, not objects of change. Oh, I and love what that. You just said, Catlin, in teachers kind of not having the agency, that's where the culture <laughs> wasn't <laughs> put in place for teachers to see themselves as agents and the driving force of the change. Because mm-hmm. they're, they're taught, unfortunately, and the conditions tell them to wait, to not be agents. And so this is where, again, culture married to structures. Um, and then the, the most the most um, challenged structure, which is unfortunately also probably the most popular, again, you and I both know this well, is, you know, the, 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 the single day PD, let's bring yeah. somebody great in and they bring in somebody like you or somebody like me. And, and it's great. But then the challenge, is, as you and I both have had frustrations around this, is, all right, how do we sustain that? Yep. How do we make sure that it doesn't just become a day of PD? Um, and so with that in mind, part of what we've really focused our work on at Link has been, let's look at these existing structures and actually start to create ways in which they can be much more sustainable and much more scalable. Yeah. And I think just, you know, piggyback on what you just said, thinking about what we've said today about the urgent, the important what you can check off a to-do list versus what's a little more intangible, planning an event where you bring in a speaker, you inspire, that's something really tangible. You plan it, yeah. you you check it off your list, but then professional learning cannot be an event. It has to be an ongoing yeah. process. And like you said, there have to be structures. I always think of it like the infrastructure, this infrastructure you can't see, but there has to be an infrastructure to support professional learning on a daily basis so that when you bring someone in great who lights a fire and gets people inspired, kind of articulates the why or the purpose behind something, that then a staff can really run with it and it doesn't fizzle out. Yeah. 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 So I know you obviously do a lot of work with teachers in kind of a training capacity. I'd love to, we talked a little bit about leadership and what they wrestle with. And I want to talk a little bit about some of the challenges, the imbalances you see the teachers that you work with struggling. And I know that you work with teachers in North America, you do a little bit of work in South America. Like what do you see as some of those big challenges facing teachers? 
Yeah, so that's a big question, um, <laughs> and one one that, that, as you can imagine, I I'm confronted with all the time. There's a few things for for sure that to me become front of mind. Um, so the first one that I want to speak on is this idea of teacher as learner. Mm. So for me, when I'm in a, a school environment or a district environment where teachers are so overwhelmed or so swamped with kind of just getting through the day. Right. And unfortunately, you know, you, you wrote a whole book about this, and how, <laughs> you, right? Like this is yeah. such a big thing, just so swamped getting through the day. There's a whole bunch that happens with regard to obviously like stress and, and not taking care of, of yourself and things like that. And there's another thing that happens that has really intrigued me recently. And that is when, when you're so overwhelmed, something that falls off of your even ability to manage or, or pursue is yourself as a learner. Yes. So imagine that you have a school environment, we don't, we don't have to imagine, a school environment where PD or the continuous learning process for a teacher mm-hmm. is viewed as such a extra thing that they can't even put themselves into the seat of learners, but the very people that they are charged to impact are learners. So now what we're asking people to do is to, to try to do a thing for learners that right now they're not actually experiencing themselves. So imagine if we take away their learning, what that then does to how they look at the rest of their work. So the, there was a teacher that we worked with some years ago who was very kind of, she was, she was completely against innovation, completely against blended learning, completely against technology in classrooms. And then what we did was we said, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to create an environment in the professional development where you're going to be kind of like the learner in the same way that we're um, coaching you on how to actually work with your students. So in other words, we're putting the teacher in the space of what we would call at that point, the 21st century learner. Okay. So she had a chance to kind of, you know, have agency over her own path. She had a chance to um, get some individualized support when she needed to. She had a chance to do all these things that become possible as you found when you start to get out of the front of the classroom. Mm-hmm. This teacher, she was about two years off of retirement Exact words from her. She said, I've never been more excited to be a teacher than right now. Oh, I love that. And what happened, Catelyn, here's what happened. She became a learner again. Yeah. She felt what it meant to be a learner again, and it changed everything. And so when I think about this balance, and I'm, I'm so glad that you're taking this on the way that you are. Because one thing that we lose when we're not intentional about this is we, we, we lose the opportunity for teachers to see themselves as, as learners. And I don't mean, again, you know, this one PD here or, oh, I, I got to go and do this, like get my certification there. And that's another day of PD. But I actually mean them shifting into a place where they have the energy, the desire to themselves be continuous learners. 
I absolutely agree. And it's funny because I've experienced it myself that when my schedule gets bananas, I have 8 million things that feel urgent that I have to get done, that the important work of me reading a book in an area where I'm curious. And because if I read a book, I'm constantly stopping and thinking, how does this apply to what I'm doing? How could I take this idea and use it over here? And as soon as I give myself the space to kind of walk away from all that urgency and everything on the Mm -hmm. to-do list that tends to like take over and I give myself a little space, that's when my creative energy takes off. That's when my curiosity kind of drives exploration. And I almost wish that like, if we could just re- design a teacher's day that they didn't have just an extra prep period for grading and lesson planning, but they just had time in their schedule to feed that for themselves. And I know that's never going to happen during the school day, which is why I'm so fixated on how do we shift some of these traditional roles and responsibilities that teachers are taking home into their lives outside of school and pull them back into the classroom, pull feedback into the classroom, pull assessment back into the classroom, engage students in self-assessment and reflection. Don't take these things home because when you're at home, you should be feeding those other parts of your brain and your body and your, you know, just everything, your emotional self, your mental self, so that you can be a learner, whether that's learning a new recipe, whether that is, you know, exploring a new trail and having time in your brains, you know, in your bandwidth to like think about the work you're doing and how you're doing it and why you're doing it. I just, I think so many teachers just don't have that. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think, and, and it's and it's a big miss, and and part of it, as I'm listening to you, the word that comes to mind for me mm-hmm. is compassion, mm-hmm. and that comes to mind for me because the like in a teacher in in the ways in which they're inundated, it's actually really hard to give yourself the compassion that you're doing what you can, right. right? And here's, here, here's where compassion also comes in is it allows you when you're compassionate with yourself to not have to always be perfect in your classroom. Hmm, that's a really great and, point. And here's what not having to be perfect allows you to do. Take risks, hmm. try new stuff. So there's a, there's a term that Dr. Ball, again, I'm go, I always go back to the research um, that she uses, and, and the term is is pedagogical problem solver. Mm-hmm. And this is a term that at Link we we are so behind the idea of the pedagogical problem solver because, again, teacher teacher in like think about this idea of teacher imbalances. So, if you go to any school today, what you're going to see or hear is probably somewhere between five to seven different initiatives that they're taking <laughs> on. There's an equity initiative. There's probably a PBL initiative. Social emotional learning. There's yep. social emotional initiative. There's this and that. So what ends up happening is teachers can actually get so overwhelmed with initiatives that what their classroom becomes is we call it initiative compliant. Mm. So they're just literally trying to figure out how to get this tool in here because there's a tech initiative and oh, I got to do a project because of that. And I got to figure out how I'm going to do this equity work. So they just end up trying to push whatever initiative is supposed to be pushed. Now, 
The initiative itself is not the problem. The problem is when teachers are forced into that mode, what doesn't come first is the student. Right. So imagine a different kind of trajectory where instead of the initiative coming first, the student comes first. And when the student comes first, then a teacher can say, hmm, if I understand this student well enough, then I actually can pull from this initiative that I've got some resources on and apply that to the needs of this learner. And hmm, this other student over here, she doesn't respond as well when I do that. However, I, I understand that student well enough to now pull from this other thing and I can reach that student. So what happens is instead of now being initiative compliant, the teacher has become what we, what Dr. Ball calls and we now call a pedagogical problem solver, which means you're starting with the student first. Mm-hmm. And by starting with the student first, that idea of compassion can now spread from, it doesn't mean that I as a teacher am doing everything right or everything perfect, but what it means is I'm willing to learn my students enough to try enough different things to get to what they need. Mm-hmm. And, and in fact, that means that many days you may not be getting it right, but that's actually not the goal. The goal is learning your student. And so when a teacher has that level of compassion to not be perfect, you can actually move into this space of pedagogical problem solving because you're willing to learn your students and take risks on trying different things to get to what works for them. Right. And it's a real acknowledgement of the classroom as dynamic space and students as being very individual learners with very different needs. Yeah. Definitely. So are there, are there any like opportunities besides like just being compassionate for ourselves, continuing to learn as educators and creating space for that to happen, maybe beyond the classroom that you think would help teachers kind of establish a healthier kind of work-life balance? Are there any other like little tidbits you've gleaned from your work with teachers? Yeah. um, So there's a couple um, for sure. I mean, I think one of them is and this kind of flows from my last comment is being willing to not take yourself yourself too seriously. <laughs> um, that's something that I, over time, even as you know, someone who does a lot of facilitation and um, a lot of coaching, um, just be, like, being willing to not take yourself too seriously because that, that allows you to be vulnerable. Um, and we had a conversation a, a few weeks ago, actually, within our company where we talked about this. And one of the things that um, came up was this, this, was this idea of performance versus presence. Hmm. So um, it was uh, one of our coaches, um, Cassandra Thaddeus, um, who works. Who oh, works I love this. Cassandra. Yeah, she's so phenomenal. <laughs> she is phenomenal. She about, yeah, she talked about this shift that she made where as a facilitator, presenter, um, and this is the same for, for maybe teachers as well because teachers are – presenters facilities most days but for her she's doing a lot of of professional development and what she talked about was there was a period of time where she looked at herself as a performer i've got to get my slides right and gotta you know say this a certain way and and it was this kind of this huge thing around the performance of it right yeah and and again there's nothing wrong with that but what she realized was 
It was keeping her on the outside of the people that she was working with. So the shift that she made was moving from performer to being present. Hmm. And when she got present, then it wasn't about, let me make sure I say all the things right and get this perfect, this and that. She could actually be present enough with the people that she was working with to sit, to figure out, hmm, what do they need today? Right. What do they need from me? What do I need from them? Right. And, and, it's, and what that allowed for is the, the separation that can so easily happen in most classroom dynamics from, well, I'm, a, I'm the teacher and you guys are the learners or I'm the facilitator and you guys are going to listen to me. When she shifted from performance to just being present, the quality of the interaction and relationship that she was able to have with her learners skyrocketed. So now the playing field of this like kind of hierarchy between teacher and learner starts to go away. And now, back to what we talked about earlier, we're all just learners. We're all learners. Mm-hmm. I may be in the role where I'm facilitating more of that, but ultimately I'm here learning with you. And that allows for a level of presence that um, when you're kind of in this mode of performance, I think is much more prohibited. Um, and so I wanted to share that as, as one of the, the other ways in which for teachers, for facilitators, for coaches, a shift, a possible shift from performance into presence can actually allow for more vulnerability and more, more vulnerability and more ability to really connect with whoever you're working with. It's so funny. As you were talking, I was literally, I wrote like performance, me, presence, us, and performance, like hierarchy with teacher at the top, students at the bottom, and presence, like partnership. And for me, it's interesting because I do work with school, a lot of schools, a lot of teachers, and I do meet teachers who are very comfortable in the performance. It's me. I know what to say. I have my slides. I'm ready to go. And there's very little willingness or even interest in shifting the focus to kind of the community of us and really thinking about, yes, I have this preset plan, which, you know, everybody should have a design in mind when they walk into a classroom, but as a dynamic space and because the needs of learners are so different, if we can't be present with them, if we can't embrace authentic learning side by side with them, how can we even hope to meet a fraction of those kids' needs. So I love that. And I also think as you were talking earlier about this idea of compassion with yourself, the need not to be perfect is also, and I've struggled with this in education a lot, is being willing to let go of guilt. You know, this idea that we're supposed to do certain things and if they don't get done, we're somehow not doing (laughs) our jobs and just realizing in a very compassionate way that, oh, you know, I did want to get X, Y, or Z done, but something came up and I, I had to shift course and I didn't get through whatever it was I intended to and that's okay and I'm gonna let go of it and I'm not gonna carry it around and feel bad and feel guilty or... You know, like I had a really aggressive blog comment pop up in one of my blogs about how I don't think teachers should grade every aspect of every assignment every time. I think we need to be really intentional about how we spend our finite time and energy. And this person was 
totally disagreeing with me in kind of a rude and aggressive way. And I thought, you know, this is so, this is part of the problem is that teachers feel like if I choose to just grade this skill or that skill, or just these two out of five criteria on a rubric, or, you know what, I'm not going to grade that even though kids did it and maybe expected a point value, that somehow they're not doing their jobs. I just feel like so often the expectations placed on teachers are totally unrealistic. So I love this idea of being compassionate with yourself and and really embracing being present with students. So thank you for that. Um, and I always end each episode by asking my guests to share any tips. And this does not have to be education related. So in fact, if it's not, that would be awesome. So for yourself, Jason, when you're trying to kind of establish, maintain some balance in your life, thinking about balancing work with personal life, do you have strategies, you know, advice, or is there anything that you do to try to kind of make time for yourself to achieve that balance outside of your work? Yes. So, uh, I love, uh, to binge shows. (laughs) (laughs) So I have no problem after a, you know, especially a long week, literally just kind of vegging out, um, for a few hours and, um, just, you know, not, not having to think about anything. And I used to kind of, you know, give myself a hard time about it. But then I was like, you know what? This is this is actually <laughs> fun. I, I enjoy this. I, I This is just what I want to do. I need a brain and, break. And exactly. Just a brain break. Um, and so that's been very effective. <laughs> um, and I think the, the, other, the other piece that's been really important for me is keeping in mind just like relationships with people that matter. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, this idea of being present. Um, like really being there, like wherever, wherever I am, whether it's hanging with, with friends, hanging with my girlfriend, like with my, with my mom or with my cousins, it doesn't matter. Just really being present there. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and being really appreciative of, of this, that space and those interactions. And so, um, cause it's, it also is very easy for time to just be, you know, not always, um, fully appreciated We take things for granted so easily. Yeah. So that's the other thing that I, that I really remind myself of, um, uh, is that, so those would be my two that, that, uh, <laughs> that come to mind. Okay. So I'm going to put you on the spot and I want you to yeah. tell me like, what have been your favorite, like maybe top one, two, maybe three shows to binge watch. Let's have it. All right. So most recently, <laughs> okay, absolutely, The Watchmen on HBO. Oh, I haven't seen that. Okay. Uh, absolutely great. I recently got into uh, The Leftovers, also on HBO. Okay. And when I really just don't want to think about anything, I watch The Office over and oh, over. Oh, I love The Office. <laughs> so I binge watch my stuff on Netflix for sure and have tons of shows. But The Office is just, I mean... <laughs> Am I the only one who thinks Jim Halpert is like the most adorable person on the planet? <laughs> I could watch that guy all day. <laughs> right. Totally. I'm not. I'm Get in line, Catelyn. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, this is wonderful. Thank you so much for joining me today, Jason. It was a real treat to have you on. Absolutely. Really great to be here. And I definitely invite folks um, that are interested in learning more about Link and what we're up to, um, to check us out at uh, Link learning.com it's l-i-n-c learning.com um, and how we're actually really putting this 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 to 
um, into practice, this idea of scaling culture, scaling professional learning in a way that really becomes sustainable. So, Catlin, this has been great. I've so much enjoyed talking with you and look forward to talking soon. So there were a lot of little takeaways for me personally from this episode. And one was this idea of culture building and looking at culture and building culture through this lens of the acronym TRACE, right? Trust, risk-taking, agency, collaboration, and equity. I feel like thinking about culture through that lens helps to make it less abstract and more concrete. And so we can start thinking as educators, leaders, what are those behaviors that are going to build a positive culture? Because culture shift, as Jason says, is frequent behaviors over time. And what structures are we putting in place on our campuses to support those behaviors and that culture shift? I think another thing for me personally is this idea of shifting from performance to presence and really thinking about having that partnership with students, sitting next to students, reading the room, understanding what individual students need and trying to meet those needs in the classroom. And that idea of being compassionate with yourself. I think we could all be a little bit more compassionate with ourselves and embrace the imperfect humans that we are. We have two teacher tips to end the episode today. The first one comes from Georgiana Dean, who says she embraces the daily one, 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 which is one hour of me time. So that could be the gym or something just for her an hour or two, she says of family time, and then one hour of PD or professional learning every day. And I love that she snuck that one in there because a lot of us would be like, oh my gosh, I can't imagine spending an hour every day on my own personal learning. But as Jason and I said, we as educators cannot stop learning. We have to carve out time to be learners. And then our second tip comes from Amy Smith, who says it's really hard not to quote should on herself, which means kind of constantly putting that pressure on yourself. Like I should be grading. I should be planning. I should be able to get through the day without a nap. And instead, let's just treat ourselves with a little compassion, realize we're human and set realistic expectations for ourselves. So thank you, Georgiana and Amy. And if you have a tip you'd like to share, you can find me on Twitter at Catlin underscore Tucker. I would love to share your tip on a future episode of The Balance. Thank you to StudySync for producing and sponsoring this podcast. StudySync is committed to helping teachers find balance in their lives by providing them with a robust multimedia ELA platform that simplifies lesson planning, automatically differentiates tasks for learners at different skill levels and language proficiencies, and blends online and offline engagement to help students develop as thinkers, readers, writers, and speakers. StudySync's most recently released product, Sync Blasts, expands the company's scope to include an emerging supplemental digital inquiry solution for social studies and science classrooms. Visit studysync.com for more information or visit the link in our show notes. By the way, the views expressed in this podcast are my own. Thanks again for listening in.